So sort of my management theory is set the expectations really, really clearly, set the job descriptions really clearly, make sure everybody knows precisely what's expected of them and what they need to accomplish, measure them based on their results and not necessarily their effort or their, or really anything, just results, and then get out of the way. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Bradley Johnson from Sawyer Property Management in the house. Brad, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to jam with you, hear everything about your business and your background. And yeah. one of the things I'm most interested in is that you are a non-founder that has taken over and running this business. That's an interesting dynamic. You seem to be doing it well. The business has a decent bit of scale. Tell me about where the, the business sits currently. Yeah, so it it has been a very interesting experience. Um, it's been really awesome. Uh, the owner of our business, Dave Sawyer, is a great owner. At this point in the life of the business, he's pretty much a passive owner and has put me in charge as CEO to grow the business, steward the business, and, and just kind of continue the legacy that he's built. Sawyer Property Management is 35 years old, longest running um, property management business in our market. So there's a lot of advantages to that, obviously. And the business is in a really stable place. We manage uh, over 1,200 units, mostly single family, though we're really starting to push more into the small to midsize multifamily market and really focusing on our profit margin, really focusing on being as profitable as we can be while not stunting any growth, making sure that we're investing in growth, investing in our people. So yeah, the business is in, a, is in an awesome place and I'm really, really grateful to be in the position that I'm in. Based on our prior conversations, you seem like somebody who's ramped really fast on context. How long have you been in this role for? Yeah, two and a half years. So not very long. All right. And so tell me about that. How did you ramp in terms of context? I went as fast as I could to learn as much as I could in as short of a period of time as I could. So the first thing that I did that made the biggest difference was I started in January two and a half years ago, and I immediately signed up for Broker Owner. And I joined NARPM and found a ton of great resources through NARPM. And at Broker Owner, I was just blown away by the scale of the ideas, the amount of the ideas, all of the vendors out there that we hadn't really known about, all of the different ancillary revenue programs that we didn't know about. And we just got to work implementing them. I um, I did it in ways that I wouldn't do it now, now that I've learned. Uh, because I had never actually been in single family property management, I made a lot of changes over the summer, which I've learned is something that you probably shouldn't do. And uh, it, was, it was a tough first year. We laugh about it now because now we have a really great system. We, we have an innovation team. So we bring in uh, all of these different ideas, all of these different products and these different vendors and we vet them and we schedule it out. We do it quarterly. And the one thing that we don't do is implement things in June. So now we implement them in the fall and the winter. But the, the different ancillary revenue programs that I've learned about, the different ways to, to grow the business, to drive revenue, to reduce expenses, I've learned a lot of that through NARPM, through different 
uh, networking groups that I'm in. And we've made a lot of progress in two and a half years, but it was definitely a really steep learning curve. And what was the state of the business when you first got into it? The state of the business was pretty stable. So the history of the business is kind of a, a shallow growth stage and then an extremely aggressive growth stage from 2010 or so to 2017 or 18. And then just before I got there in 21, the business had plateaued in a lot of ways and actually had started to decline. We were really getting hammered by the sales market. And I know that's not unique to our market, but the amount of property loss we were experiencing was really significant. So we had gotten to, I think, 1,500 units and we were losing a net of about 125, 150 per year. And that's not a good track. That's not where you want to be. So my first mission when I started was stop the, the loss, stop the churn, figure out how to at least get to a place where we can be net zero. Um, I was aided by the, well, the interest rate has really helped. The interest rate action in the last year has really helped. But even before that, we got to a place where we were stemming the tide and growing our new business by instead of 9, 10, 11 units a month, 15, 16 units a month, and then really trying to understand why our owners were leaving. Was it, when, when I first got there, I thought that the, hey, everybody's selling their house was a bit of an excuse, mm -hmm. something that we were just sort of hanging our hat on and saying, this is just the way it is. It's just the way it's going to be. And I tried really hard to, to change that mode of thinking and to really say, well, what could we do to stop the loss? What could we do to stop the sale? And so we, we've done a number of things that have really helped with that. What comes to mind? What actually made a difference? This is an area where people get stuck. People get really yeah. enamored with this idea that it's a market factor, can't do anything about it. What did you try? What didn't work and what did work? Yeah. So the first thing we thought about doing that we ended up not doing was starting a brokerage side. So one of the things that's unique about our business is that we are laser focused on long-term residential property management. That is the only thing we do. We're in a market where there's all kinds of things you can do. We live at the beach. So there's a huge short-term rental opportunity. Um, there's commercial, there's HOA, there's brokerage. And it's tempting, at least for me, to get distracted by those things. Now, I know a lot of people have managed to figure out how to do all of those things well. But particularly for me, as somebody who's new to the industry, I really want to master this industry and get really, really good at it before we even think about those things. So we thought about doing brokerage, but we decided against it. Um, instead, we just did what I think anybody would do in that situation. We tried to figure out the problem. So we started calling our owners. We started asking them, you know, why are you leaving? Are you considering those, those who were not leaving? Are you considering leaving? Or are you looking at selling your house? So the answer really was mostly, I'm selling my house. I bought my house from 2010 to 2017 at a nice, decent low price, or I bought my house before the crash and I've been an accidental landlord and I couldn't get my money out of my house. And people are offering me numbers that don't make sense for me to not sell. And so they were selling. But sometimes in that conversation, you can recognize that although they think it makes financial sense to sell, if you run the numbers and you run a pro forma and you look at the rent growth and you look at how much money you're saving with taxes and all of those different things, 
sometimes it does make sense to hold on. And so we got a lot of people who said, hey, I'm looking at selling my house. Can you tell me how to get out of my management contract? To which instead of answering their question, we would reframe their question and say, have you considered the tax implications of selling your house? And, and have you considered where you would put the money if you did sell your house? Can you get the annual return in a traditional stock market investment that you can get in portfolio property management? I think the answer is no. I could be wrong about that. We'll see. But the, the home values and the rental values in our market, yeah, it's a tertiary market, but it's, it's an inexpensive place to live. It's a beautiful place to live. And it's one of the fastest growing places to live in the United States. And all of that adds up to higher rents, better tenants, and a lot of transients because we also have a marine base down the street. So it's an incredible place to invest um, in, in real estate. So just pressing more into the conversation. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, just really digging in and, and saying, yes, it seems like a good idea. All of your friends are selling their houses and they're making X amount of money. That's great. But you have a great tenant. You have a great management company. We have a great relationship. Run the numbers and see what it would look like to hold this for 10 more years rather than sell it potentially pay taxes on it and reinvest your money somewhere else where the returns are a whole lot less certain. What was your background before you were doing this? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So out of college, I actually went to seminary to be a pastor. So I spent three years getting my Master of Divinity. Um, I worked at a church for a few years. I actually helped plan a church. My first entrepreneurial journey was helping to plant this church in Wilmington. Um, I went to NC State University, so I grew up in Wilmington, went to NC State, and then I moved back to help plant this church while I was doing seminary. Which has its own organizational planning, logistical dynamics. Oh man, I learned so much from that. And I think, I think there's a lot in what I do now that I can attribute to what I learned in helping grow and scale that church. Because yes, there's a lot of difference, obviously, between a property management business and a church nonprofit organization. But you're, you're kind of doing something very similar when you look at scaling and when you look at how do we deal with an influx of people. Because that church grew from an initial team of about 40 people to 600 in two years. So there were a lot of decisions that had to be made very quickly. And often in the church world, the people come first and the money comes later. So you have to figure out how to bootstrap it and how to, how to get from A to B before people become more ingrained in the church and start giving. So a lot of mm. lessons from that. Mm. Um, for an, a number of reasons, I didn't end up staying there as a full-time staff person uh, after those three years. And so I basically just found the first job I could get, and that was an HOA manager. So I managed HOAs for two years in Wilmington, and that was a wild journey. Um, I think there are a lot of people in single family rentals management who did the HOA thing and now are very consciously doing something other than that. It is a, it is a hard job and not a very rewarding job. And then I, I did that for two years. Then I moved on to commercial property management for two years, managed office, retail, light industrial, about half a million square feet, and got my real estate license in that time and learned more about how the real estate proper world works. And then just by a very fortunate situation, uh, Dave found me on LinkedIn. I think he just used a recruiter 
And there was nothing on my resume that said that I could or should do this job. I had never managed a person before. I had never managed a single family rental. I think he thought I was the right person and I had the right skills and the right soft skills to be able to do the job. And he took a chance on me in a lot of ways because, like I said, I didn't, I didn't have the credentials. But he, he put his faith in me and is an, a really good example of how to be a great owner who's transitioning to a different phase of their life. Um, he was the first person who, who made all the promises that you make when you're hiring somebody, especially if you're hiring uh, an executive team member or a CEO. You make a lot of promises. You tell them how it's going to be, how wonderful it's going to be. And then usually it's not. It's not quite that. Or sometimes, like in my previous job, it was not that at all. It was the total opposite. But he, he did what he said he was going to do. And he took two or three months. He poured into me. He taught me everything he could think to tell me. And he was available for me as a resource. Then he stepped away. And he said, you know how to do this. You have, you have the knowledge and the skills at this point to do this. I'm going to get out of your way. And I'm going to let you do this. You are probably going to fail at some things, but you're going to succeed at most things and you'll learn from your failures and you will be fine. You're not going to run the business into the ground. Don't be scared to make big decisions or to do things differently than the way they've been done or differently than the way that I would do them. Just do them. And if you need me, I'll be here to help. And that's what, that's what actually happened. And kind of the rest is history. We, we, like I said, kind of had a rough first year trying to right the ship trying to get the right team members on the ship. We had a little bit of staff attrition. We, we needed to turn over three, four, five people who had been there way too long and hire some people who really needed to be there. And we did that. It, it took a while, but that after that first year, we really started kicking it into gear. So you're a couple of years into this CEO, CEO role with no prior experience. Tell me what's shaping and influencing you're thinking about leadership and managing right now. Yeah. So the best answer to that and the thing that I think about the most is not really what did I learn from my great managers, but how do I do the exact opposite of my really bad managers? And I learned a lot more from the people who were very bad at this than the people who were good at this. And so one of the things that I learned is what our company really needed was some organizational structure. Every, when I came in, everybody had a role. Everybody kind of knew their role, but everybody was doing their role how they wanted to do it, really without any sort of structure. We didn't have clear lines of communication or clear reporting lines. And so the first thing I did was identify the four or five people, it was four at the time, who really needed to own their departments. And, and formalize that structure. It was very flat. And, and I'm, in general, a proponent of a flat structure. And ours is still relatively flat. But we needed directors. We needed someone to own marketing, to own accounting, to own operations. And so that was a little bit different. At the same time, what I really wanted was a, a formal reporting structure, but an extremely high trust environment where nobody felt like they were being micromanaged. So sort of my management theory is set the expectations really, really clearly, set the job descriptions really clearly, make sure everybody knows precisely what's expected of them and what they need to accomplish, measure them based on their results and not necessarily their effort or, their, or really anything, just results, and then get out of the way. 
give them the resources they need to do their job, let them have the flexibility they want to do their job. Historically, our company has been a very nine to five. You're in the office, you come in at nine or 8.30 and you leave at five. That's it. That's the way that it works. I tore that apart. And the way that I tore that apart, honestly, was by not doing it myself. I said to them, I want you to work in the way that's most comfortable for you. If that's fully remote, if that's hybrid, half remote, whatever you need to do to get the results that we need from you, that's how you should do it. I eliminated the PTO system. I think it's outdated. I don't think it works. I think if you have a company like I do of 18, 19, 20 people, you know they're the right people. You know that you can trust them. Why would you, why would you try to manage how much time they take off? They know how to do their jobs. I trust them to do their jobs. So I want them to feel the freedom to not work when they need to not work and to work when they need to work. So, so you do unlimited PTO. I do unlimited PTO. Yeah, and it's great. And nobody abuses it. People like it because they don't feel this, this need to build up hours to take a vacation. They just plan a vacation and they take a vacation when they want to. And the hybrid work model, like I said, I kind of, in order to get them to actually believe that I meant what I say about that, I did that. Because I've always thought that that would be at least the most effective model for me. I love the office. I love coming into the office. I love the banter, the conversation, all of that. Um, but when I need to really lock down and focus, I have to be on my own and usually not sitting in my office. So I come in, I work the first four or five hours of the day in the office, do all my meetings, all the face-to-face, -face, all the check-ins, you know, make sure that everybody has what they need in order to do their work that day. And then I leave and I go to a coffee shop. I go home, I go wherever. And that's when I lock in and do my work. And everybody knows if you want to meet with Brad, you set a meeting for the morning, you find time on his calendar in the morning and you set, you set some time because that's when, that's when he's most available. And in general, leave him alone in the afternoon because the things that he's working on are hopefully going to improve the company make it more profitable, grow the revenue, and he needs that time to do it. What have you blown up thus far? A couple of years in, there's got to be some, some mistakes, some bombs, un unforced errors. What, uh, what lessons learned do you have on that front? Well, the first one I already mentioned, and that's trying to reinvent the wheel in the middle of the summer. I almost faced a riot. Mutiny. When I did that. Yeah, mutiny. That's a better word for it. Uh, that was a very bad idea, and I really don't recommend that anybody does that. Um, the other thing that I have done is now I, I learned not to do this after the fact I read, we're reading as a, as a company, we're reading a book called reality based leadership, which is an awesome book. Highly recommend it. Um, helps you get a more realistic sense of how things are rather than how you think that they maybe should be or how, um, mm. how, how they, how you want them to be. So one of the things that we did with before reality-based leadership was I made so many changes and I made them so fast. I came back from broker owner, that first one in Connecticut. Uh, I was a kid in a candy shop at broker owner. There were a number of people who could tell that I was new and they kind of took me under their wing and they told me about a lot of great ideas. All obviously from the presenters, I heard a lot of great ideas. So I came home and I, what I screwed up was trying to do 10 things at once. I wanted to change software. I wanted to add vendors. I wanted to remove vendors and things like that. So what I messed up most 
pronounced in that, um, in the way that I did that was I wasn't honest with our staff about how difficult it would be. So I am by nature an extreme optimist. And a lot of people hate that about me because they think rightly that I can't really see the downside. And I think as an as a entrepreneurial or someone in an entrepreneurial role, you kind of have to have a level of optimism or you're going to fail because there are so many risks that you have to take. But in that optimism, I lost the ability to make clear to the organization how difficult it might be or how much pain there might be as we go through it. So instead of saying, hey, we're making this change, we're, we're rolling out this software, we're transitioning from one software to another, the next six months are going to be hell. They're going to be really bad. We're not going to like it. We're going to regret this. We're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars and feel like we made no progress. Because um, honestly, when you change software, especially significant software, it, it kind of is like that most of the time. Now we're getting better, I think, as an industry, as a space in mitigating that, I think. But I should have been honest about what it was going to be like. And instead, all I talked about was the upside. Mm. This is going to be amazing. We're going to do this. It's going to be so much more efficient. You're going to love your job. You're going to love everything about it. When the truth is, yeah, that's true, but that's a year or two down the road. And we need to be honest about the pain between now and then, or maybe not even pain, but just the work that it's going to take. So I did that a couple of times until I realized that forecasting and setting the expectations much more clearly mm -hmm. is a much, much better way to manage people and manage change. So I would say change management has been one of the biggest things I've learned in these couple of years. Sure. Yeah. It's easy to think that you're going to demoralize people by telling yeah. them the truth. Right. The reality is you're actually hardening, hardening them against the actual reality that will come no matter what. Right. And you're anchoring them in, in something that's much more realistic, mm -hmm. which makes it not as bad when you're fighting through it because you're reminding yourself, oh yeah, I was told that it was going to be like this. So why would I expect anything different? What's your approach to goal setting and planning? Yeah. So I use, uh, I'm in the strategic coach program, which I absolutely love. Great program. It's awesome. Um, and I would highly recommend it for, for people in our, in our business and our line of work, especially with the size company that, that I run. It's a really great fit. So I'm in strategic coach and I use a lot of their goal setting material as well as, um, traction. You know, I'm on EOS. So I use the 10-year, three-year, one-year, 90 days, rocks, breaking those rocks down into pebbles, things like that. So I like to dream really big. Um, I'm not scared to set a big goal that I don't end up reaching because if you don't set that big goal, you're not even going to get close. So I might as well give it a shot. And, you know, we have big dreams for the business. We think that we can grow organically to a much bigger scale than what we have. In your market or in, in other markets? In our market. At, at least at this time, I'm still very committed to how can we be excellent at single family, long-term and multifamily property management in Wilmington, North Carolina. It is, it is, yes, it's a small market, but it's growing so fast. What's the population? Yeah, so Wilmington proper is about 100,000 and the Wilmington Metro is about 250,000. And we're, we're, we cover the whole Metro area. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And we honestly don't have another competitor who's 
anywhere close to our scale or has anything close to the experience that our property managers have, which there's a lot of things that I think are unique about our company, but our property managers, their experience, our average tenure for a property manager right now is 10 years. And that's pretty uncommon in our industry. We have seven or eight property managers and you know, a couple of them have been there 15, 18, 20 years, but the average is 10. That's amazing. It really is. 10 years at our company, not in the industry. The our, our in the industry average is 20 years, mm. but they know our company, they know our system, they know our market, and they are amazing. And so nobody leaves us except when they sell their house. So the last year has been awesome for us because all of the house selling pretty much stopped. And so we saw our back door pretty much get slammed shut. And people are starting to realize, I think, in that process, just how valuable it is to hold real estate investments in Wilmington because of the population influx and because it's really just not a great time to sell as well. What do you feel like you personally are getting out of the business that is not monetary related? Yeah, that's an, that's an easy one. It's definitely the, the people and getting to help people progress in their careers, help people progress personally. That's something that I learned from a pretty young age, being in a kind of a semi-pastoral role when I was um, working at the church and I was in seminary and realizing that my dream for myself, I mean, obviously I went to seminary to become a pastor. My dream was never to make a lot of money. Money is just sort of the ancillary thing that happens when you are following your passions and you're doing things that really bring a lot of value to people. They bring value to your stakeholders. They bring value to your employees. So my favorite thing is to help our employees, to help our property managers, to help our staff grow and succeed both personally and professionally. So we spend a lot of time and money growing our professional development and really investing in our employees. And then I just love to see them thrive personally. I mean, in some ways, when you're a property management CEO and you work in a business where there's a lot of stress and a lot of difficult conversations, you kind of become a therapist. Mm. Um, everyone who's listening to this is probably laughing because they know that feeling of coming to work and having an agenda for what you want to accomplish that day, all the things you want to do, all the progress you want to make on the revenue and profit side. And then there's a line out your door with people who want to come tell you about their problems. And we've learned a lot, like I said, through reality-based leadership about how to help people with their problems, not take on their problems for them, because that doesn't help them. That doesn't help them learn and grow. Um, but when we, you know, when we practice that, sorry, I got a fly in my head. Oh, okay. Mosquito, <laughs> actually. Okay. Oh, I got Zika. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when we practice reality-based leadership, when we are honest about the situation, when we understand that it's usually not personal, that person's not mad at you because they hate you. They're mad at you because you're the person in between them and the solution to their problem sometimes. So helping them figure out that solution, helping drive those conversations, and seeing people leave the office in fix those problems within the business where they're having with a tenant or an owner, and then apply those same skills to their personal life, to their marriage, to their parenting, to their friendships, and then ha seeing them come back and say, hey, that thing that we talked about 
was really helpful. And I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just stealing other people's ideas and using sort of the resources that I can find. But it's really, really gratifying. And it, it gives me a lot of purpose in my work. What's the bleeding edge of that for you personally? You can only pour into other people derivative of what you have. What's the bleeding edge of your own personal development, the, the conversations that you're trying to challenge in your own head to pursue growth? Yeah. So I spend a lot of time reading books. I've already made a couple book recommendations in our session, and I'm sure I have a lot more to go. Um, I find a lot of knowledge in books, a lot of things that really help me. One of the primary ways that I break this stuff down and work through my problems is through my conversations at home with my wife. Uh, she's much smarter than me. She's much wiser than me. Uh, she can see things a lot more objectively than I can. Um, hopefully someday she'll work in our business. <laughs> but right now she's, she's in financial planning. Um, she'd be an asset pretty much any business. But I work through a lot of stuff with her and that really helps. And then Strategic Coach is, is just an, a great program, like I said. I, I get a lot out of the workshops, out of the different tools. But the, the thing I get the most, and it's kind of the same as broker owner for me at this point, it's really the informal conversations with entrepreneurs who have been doing this longer than me, who've had more success than me, who have a better idea of how to do things than I do. And just being in those circles and listening to people is always worth the price of admission. Both Strategic Coach and pretty much any NARPM event, I'm going to get more out of those dinners or those happy hours just talking shop with people who are on the front edge of, of everything in our industry. Who are some mentors and people you look up to in the industry? Yeah. So Brian Birdie is definitely one of them. He For a lot of people, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not alone in that. Um, particularly the way that Brian is so eager to help. I, I understand that when you're at the level that he's at, you, you, should, you want to be and should be compensated for your consulting and for your knowledge. And so I'm sure he has that set up just like a lot of other guys do who, who have the ability to impart that knowledge. But every time I'm at a conference, I sit, sit down with him for half an hour, an hour, and I've got a list of like six or seven questions that I've been thinking about for the last few months so that when I have the time to sit down with Brian, I can ask him how he's doing them and basically just figure out how to do, how to, how to take his answer, his idea and implement it in my market. And the, the best thing I got out of that was his guarantee program. So one of the biggest successes that we've had in 2023 was we rolled out a uh, seven guarantees. And instead of charging just per guarantee or throwing in the guarantees with our existing management structure, we did a tiered system where we have one, one percentage management fee for this tier and then a higher management fee percentage for this tier. And the only difference are the guarantees. So these seven guarantees. And the percentage difference is pretty significant. 80% of our new owners have agreed to pay us more money in order to hedge their risk with those seven guarantees. Tell me about the seven guarantees. Oh, man. It's just, it's just great. Well, before I do, I just kind of want to mention, I think, the psychology behind it. And the psychology is, how do we get to a risk-free property management experience? Most people have their, their indecision on whether or not to invest in real estate or their indecision about whether or not to hire a property management company is, what happens if 
everything hits the fan. But what happens if everything goes terribly wrong? And we take those guarantees and we, we built them out. And I, you know, Brian helped me with a lot of them, but we build them out to basically mitigate every risk we can think that we can mitigate so that people feel comfortable. Uh, we say confidence, clarity, and peace of mind. That's our tagline. That's what we want to provide. Confidence, clarity, peace of mind. If we give our owners those three things, we don't think they'll ever leave. So guarantees. So the pet guarantee, that's a huge one. And that's a really popular one in the industry. Instead of uh, having a one-time pet fee, you have a monthly pet fee that you, the management, fee, the management company, collect and keep. And in response, you issue a guarantee to the owner that says, if the tenant damages uh, X amount of dollars, we will pay for it. The tenant's pet produces X amount of monetary damage. We will pay you to cover the restoration of that house. And our guarantee is really high. I mean, most people I think are doing $1,000, $1,500. Our guarantee is $3,000 because I think that number indicates our commitment to helping you reduce the risk. A lot of people don't want pets in their house. Sure. I think that's very silly because 60, 65%, the number goes up every time I look at it of tenants have pets. So we don't want our owners to block out a good tenant pool because then it makes it extremely difficult for us to rent their house. So instead, we just take the risk away and say, yeah, pets do sometimes damage houses, but we're going to collect a fee from your tenant. And if anything goes wrong, we're going to cover it. And we haven't had to pay that out yet, which is great. I'm sure at some point we will. And I think we'll do it with a smile because that's the purpose of the program. Yes, we want to make money on the ancillary program. But we, what we really want to do is give that peace of mind to the owner through the pet program. And, so, and then there's a, there's a bunch of different ones. If we don't lease your property within 30 days, you don't pay management fees. We're here to lease your property. That's, that is our primary goal when you give us a house is get a great tenant in your house. Now, you have to accept our recommendation for rent because we're not going to take your crazy idea that your house is actually worth $1,000 more a month than it is. We know better than that. So you, you do have to take our recommendation. But assuming you do, if we don't write it in 30 days, we'll waive your management fee. If you uh, aren't satisfied in the first 90 days of managing, of us managing your property, for any reason, you can just cancel. We'll refund all your money that we paid you mm. or that you paid us. So that's another one. That's happened once. And again, I was happy. I was happy to refund that money because we learned through that process that that owner was not the right owner for us. The reason they were dissatisfied is they didn't get the control over their property that they wanted. Mm. I think we did a good job laying out the expectations, but they wanted to control who does the maintenance. They wanted to control the tenant that comes in. And that's just not a good fit for us. So when they, when they gave us notice, I said, all right, here's a check. Here's your money. See ya. So we, did, we just don't need that. And then another really good one, there are more, but there, another really good one is eviction protection. That's oftentimes an owner's most significant risk factor. What if I have a terrible tenant and I have to evict them and it's going to cost money? Well, our eviction protection guarantee makes it so that if that happens, we'll cover your court costs. We'll cover your filing. We'll handle it all for you. We'll evict that tenant. And oh, by the way, we have another guarantee, a leasing guarantee, where if your tenant skips out, in the first six months, or we have to evict your tenant, we'll find a better tenant, put him in your property, and we won't charge you a leasing fee. Because our goal is to keep your property rented. The worst thing for you is vacancy loss. 
And we're not going to charge you if you have a vacancy loss that wasn't your fault or our fault or anybody's fault. We just want to get a good tenant in your house. And we think that that builds this sort of lifelong loyalty that we see with a lot of our owners who've been with us for 10, 15, 20 years. And these are all programs that you're handling in-house? Yes. Yeah, we, we administer all of these on our own. Yeah. Got it. Seven guarantees. Seven guarantees. Fairly low cost basis associated with this. And extremely low. 80% of new owners are opting for this. Yeah, they are. They're willing to pay a couple percentage points more on their management fee in order to get these guarantees. And like you said, the cost basis is low. We, at least so far, we very rarely have to pay out on any of them. But when we do, we're happy to because we know that we have, we have, solidified that relationship with that owner. Unless it's somebody leaving, we've solidified that relationship and they they know that we have their back because they're our client. They're the ones we have the duty to and we have their back and we're not afraid to spend the money to make sure that they retain the confidence, clarity, and peace of mind that they, uh, that they signed up for. What's helped you with your growing your financial literacy? It's a whole other part of the conversation. I'm not talking about accounting. Mm-hmm. Talking about finance, money, yeah. cash flows. You said that you hadn't managed people, which I'm going to assume that also means that you hadn't had carried a lot of PL yeah. responsibility prior. Mm-hmm. What does your education and, and upskilling there look like? Yeah. So that's a good question. I learned a decent amount of that in commercial. So, commercial property management, I think, at least from what I can see, th- those managers typically have a better understanding of how to manage financials maybe than residential property managers. The, the client is usually more sophisticated. The client is usually wealthier. And the client typically cares a whole lot less about who is renting from me. And they care a whole lot more about cap rates and IRR and all of these different things, these different metrics that they're trying to achieve. So I, I took a lot of that knowledge and applied it. The other thing I did was I finished my CPM through IRAM. IRAM has great education when it comes to financial literacy for property management. Um, it, it's mostly geared towards commercial, but it applies really well for residential. And the other one was I just really dug into our books. I spent a lot of time in our financials, historical financials from the last 10, 15 years. I talked to a lot of people. I talked to Danny, obviously a profit coach. Um, I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot from different people in the industry. but I spent a lot of time in the financials and it's interesting when you spend that much time what you can find and what you can and when you match up the sort of operational metrics of doors in, doors out, days on market and your income and how those things correlate and how you can how how you need to fix some of the operational things in order to generate the revenue was a was a great education for me. When you think about what you're aiming at, where you're steering the business towards, you talked about growing the business. You talked about a lot of focus, Mm -hmm. which was the opposite of different product lines, ancillary stuff, et cetera. So what what kind of scale is specifically in your mind over the next three to five years? Yeah. So I like the slow and steady growth approach. I'm more of, when it comes to everything in the business, pretty much. I'm the hare. I want to do it right now. I want to do it as fast as possible. When it comes to business growth, I'm much more the tortoise. I want to do it well. I want to do it methodical. I want to do it organically. I want to do it, honestly, at a pretty low cost. I want, I want to make the argument to the owners of rental properties in Wilmington 
that they will make more money, have more peace of mind, and have an easier time if they use us to manage their property. So I'm doing a few things. Obviously, we do a lot of inbound stuff. Um, we do, you know, Google ads and things like that. Uh, but we do, we just started doing more outbound as well. We use Rescover to, uh, to drive our leads, to download lists. The data is really great. And I have somebody who's spending hours and hours a week just making phone call after phone call after phone call oh. to, to non-owner occupied properties that are not professionally managed. So my favorite stat in the industry is that there are 17 million single-family rental homes in the United States, and 70% of them are self-managed. The enemy is not, or not the enemy, the competition is not the other management companies in town. The competition is always self-management. That's who we have to go after. We have to make the case to them that they'll make more money and do less work if they have their house professionally managed. And I can make that argument because I can look at what they're getting on their rent from Zillow for rent or on Craigslist or on Facebook. And I know I can get two, three, four hundred dollars more, which easily covers my management fee. So going outbound, going after them and saying, Can I just can I just show you the numbers? Can I just show you what this will look like if you're willing to take a chance on us? And oh, by the way, look at our 600 Google reviews and look at our 35 years in business, look at our market share and really make the case to owners and instead of just waiting for them to come to us. So we manage about 1,200 units. In the next three to five years, I'd really love to see that get up to 1,500, 1,600 units without buying other management companies, because I think we can do that. I think we can health, healthily, steadily grow 100 to 150 units every month, sorry, every year, so 10 to 12 per month for three to five years and really create a lot of scale and use the efficiencies that we're building through operations and automa automation to not really have to increase our workforce count all that much. We use virtual assistants, remote team members uh, to a great degree, which is really helpful. But you know, I, I think we can get from this 180 to 200 properties per property manager and move that to 250, 300 per manager. I know people have done that very successfully and that would allow us to grow the business and not really grow the headcount and get even more profitable and chase that uh, that tenth tenth percent or ninetieth percentile ninety fifth percentile profitability that that we're after. Talk to me more about property performance being improved as a result of working with a professional. You mentioned in increasing rent. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a layup, right? It's a layup. Not always going to be there though. Sometimes yeah. the rent's going to be on point. What what other dimensions would you add to that picture and, and to buttress that argument? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the best ones is maintenance. So we think that we have, well, we know that we have very tightly integrated maintenance vendors within our network. So we use, predominantly, we use one HVAC company. We use one plumber. We use one electrician. We use two or three turn companies. Um, and so that gives us a lot of scale with those vendors. There's a lot of trust between the two of us. They give us really great prices because obviously we're giving them hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars of business. Our, our turn vendors, we pay $1.2, $1.3 million out to them every year through our portfolio. So we can do maintenance cheaper and more reliably than somebody who is self-managing and has to pull out a phone book and call somebody and hope that they can get to them. And that's a big deal when you live in Hurricane Alley, a big deal. 
we've gone through some serious hurricanes with Matthew and obviously the big one was Florence. And if you're self-managing and your house is a mess, you weren't getting anybody. Maybe you were getting somebody who drove down from New Jersey to see if they could get some, some work, but you're not getting a local reputable vendor. But we were first, our properties were first on everybody's list. They were the first ones to get fixed, the first ones for the tenant to move back in, and the first ones to eliminate the vacancy loss that happens after a major hurricane. So I would say that maintenance is a, is a really big one. And then the other big sell, the big value sell is we have one property manager who is your point of contact. You have one person at our company that you call and that person knows you, they know your property, they know your goals, they care about your goals, and they manage your property in order to meet your goals. You know, some people are, are very willing to take a lower rent rate in order to have a tenant stick around who's been there for a long time. And our, our property managers know what our owners want, then they manage the properties in order to achieve those goals. And if you are a self-managing owner, you're really just kind of hoping for the best when you get tenants. And, and tenants are the other one. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of a layup, but I can't stress enough, enough the difference between putting something on Craigslist and seeing who emails you versus our system of a credit score and income verification and all the different things we do to make sure that our tenants are great tenants who will actually pay on time. I mean, our, our eviction rate is tiny. Our late payment rate is so small. I mean, under 1% on both of those. And you're just really rolling the dice when you self-manage. So there's a lot of arguments to make. Did I hear through that that you guys have a portfolio management structure? Yeah, I do more of a hybrid structure where I have the, it is portfolio, but it's, it's a little bit more hybrid because I have the property managers taking care of the owner and taking care of the property. And then I have our remote team members handling everything on the tenant side. They're helping with the maintenance stuff, but primarily they're doing the tenant prospecting, the leasing, the lease signing, the administration of the resident benefits package, and all of those things. So yes, it's portfolio, but the property manager is not doing everything for the property. They're focusing on the owner and the property itself. And you found the gains there. Well, you know, you've been around long enough to think through pod, squad, department, <laughs> yeah, right. et cetera. Is this what was, or was it something else? And you no, this is, this? it was kind of headed this way, but I formalized the process and particularly using remote team members to handle the tenant side of things has been a huge game changer. The owners, especially because a lot of our owners are local Wilmington people, they want to pick up the phone and call somebody with a 910 number, you know, and, and actually speak to a property manager who lives and works in the community. And so they care about that a lot. But on the tenant side, that's really not as important. They want to make sure that their application is approved, that they get the information they want. And remote team members handle that just as well as, or probably even better than we could. So yeah, I, it wasn't quite like that when I got there. We certainly didn't have any remote team members, but the, the way that we've really bifurcated that and made it um, really efficient has been a big game changer for us. Absolutely. Brad, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. I'm excited to see what you're doing. You're part of the new crop of people that are bringing in energy and vitality to this industry. So I'm wishing awesome. you a lot of luck. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me. This has been great. Appreciate you. All right, man. 
Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you wanna ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.